Hi, my name is Heather Lutz. I am a manager at DataSite for data and data integrations, and this is the MongoDB podcast. Welcome to the show. My name is Shane McAllister, and this is the MongoDB podcast. As ever, we're grateful to have you tune in to yet another episode of the MongoDB podcast. And in this episode, Mike Lynn talks to Heather and Michael from DataSite. DataSite is a platform for mergers and acquisitions and has been a MongoDB customer for six years or so, starting with on-site or on-premise, but recently moved to MongoDB Atlas, our developer data platform in the cloud. In their conversation, we learn all about the scale at which DataSite operates, with over 40 terabytes of data stored in Atlas in the US alone, and much more throughout the rest of the world. And what drew them first to MongoDB? How they manage scale, performance, and we go in depth into details such as sharding and their plans around applying AI to the data site system. Well, Michael, Heather, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. How are you both doing today? Wonderful. Doing great. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. And uh, today we're going to be talking about DataSite and kind of the journey that DataSite has been on. Uh, we'll do that through the lens of your own personal experiences at DataSite. And Heather, maybe talk a little bit about how long you've been with DataSite and some of the things that you've done. Yes, I've been with DataSite for about six years. I actually joined this project as a junior engineer when this was still in Greenfield. So I was one of the engineers who set up some of the original services for the site, some of the original schemas. And I was actually trained in MongoDB. And the group that got trained was the one who set up all of our original clusters um, way back six years ago. Um, it's been quite a journey since then. We've gone from managing all of our MongoDB databases and clusters on site having some trial and error discussions on uh, how to set up and architect it. And now we have since converted to Atlas. We're running currently, I believe, 15 clusters uh, between our regional and global nodes. And we are spinning up more all the time. Having access to MongoDB has really let us as a company expand extremely quickly. Oh, that's great. And we're going to get into what DataSite does as a company. But before we do that, Michael, uh, tell the folks a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I started with DataSite uh, just about three years ago, coming up on three years. I started as a senior engineer. My role today is around technology enablement, which is a, a somewhat newer paradigm. Essentially, it's the concept of taking a challenge from end to end, focusing on not just technology, but processes, operations, people, training, uh, user experience, all of the various components of a cohesive situation, basically. And then um, working with the teams that own that functionality or those processes of that to come together and, and arrive at a, a solution that works best for everyone. And so I have done I've been on a lot of very interesting projects, especially this year. You know, uh, some of it is around data architecture. Some of it is around, you know, some of the, we primarily focused on data architecture. Some of it was the bulk of the solution was just talking to people and getting everybody on board. I mean, you know, really the focuses are, are myriad in the technology enablement space. That sounds like a really interesting and varied role. I, I love that. So let's talk a little bit about DataSite and what it does. What does DataSite do as a company? 
So Datasite develops, it has a platform now. Um, I know we started out with products initially. Um, we are now a platform that facilitates the mergers and acquisition lifecycle. So if you are a company and you're trying to sell your company, you're trying to buy a company, you are just doing initial research on who to sell or buy, <laughs> you know, and closing a deal and storing the documents. That is our, our focus today where we started and you know Heather can talk more about this was primarily around the concept of a file room way back in the olden days folks would go would allow or set up a room in their office and just dump an insane amount of boxes of files in there and then allow the other party to go in and at a certain for a certain amount of time and review them and look up things that you know cause concern for the the transaction that kind of stuff our first entry into this uh, was focused around digitizing that file room, adding in protections, eventually adding in redaction, and now AI-assisted redaction, and you know, just kind of list keeps growing. And then as we kind of grew into you know more components of the life cycle, that one was focused primarily on the seller side. We then moved into a variety of other life cycles, including the buy side, and started adding new uh, what we're calling capabilities, which are you know we have a a spreadsheet like functionality on the site that's digitized, kind of like kind of like Google Sheets, um, but with some very MA specific functionality in place. You know, started adding in other things, um, allowing them granular permission, uh, you know, allow them to granularly manipulate the permissions on content, on features, that kind of thing. We allow we have another capability where they're able to email things directly into the project and gets processed and, you know, you can review them and that kind of thing, um, or to send bulk emails out to potential sellers. So there's a variety of different components within the platform that we support and the list is ever growing. Well, I mean, it sounds like uh, security would be massively important in that type of environment. Yes. I'm curious about the documents or the data schema. So here you've got a whole variety of document types and data contained within each of those documents and I mean, who knows what the data elements are going to be? And I understand, Heather, you had quite an important role in the initial layout, in the initial schema creation. Do you want to talk about like how you went about looking at the possible data types and, and maybe even talk about like why MongoDB was selected? Yeah, we can, we can certainly go into some of that discussion. So, I mean, one of the advantages that we did have coming into this project as a greenfield was this was a rebuild of a current project. So we can say we don't know exactly what they're going to be uploading, but we had a pretty good sense of what that metadata was going to be as we built out the schema. So, you know, for certain, every document is going, it's going to have some kind of data type. It's going to have a certain number of pages in it. I mean, that's just what what a document is and what is contained in there. So that information fell in a fairly flat field that was very easy to query. And then we thought, well, in addition to the basic metadata around the document itself, what else is going to be fetched in the vast majority of queries as we look at the usage in the application? So then one of the items we thought of was, well, access. Access was another one that at the time we ended up landing in there. And it's like, well, because when you load the page, we want to know, okay, you have access to which of these metadata, which documents, what can you see? What can you download? What what can you actually print? So that ended up being an, a basically a nested series of fields and arrays within that document because that ends up getting fetched in with almost every query because we need to know if you have access. Mm. Um, that's something that we are starting to shift now 
as our use cases have grown potentially. But those, those were some of those thoughts um, coming out the gate. We also ended up putting processing stages in there as well to know that like when a document is finished processing, is it still in the process of uploading? Did it fail? Was also another one that, well, it was kind of important to know. Uh, it's all fresh at the same time. So I'm, I'm imagining these, this file room and going from the physical world to the digital world. These documents are scanned in some way. Yes. Is there a physical component of the data site platform? Uh, you know, the scanning, for example, or you just basically work with whatever scanning infrastructure is in place. They would upload their digital content. We don't have a concept of, oh, I see. of scanning in documents. Okay, yet. so there's no longer a physical room. The customers of DataSite come to you with correct electronic media. In the application, yep. Okay, and that's probably PDF or images. So I'm imagining, I'm imagining- At least, seriously, anything. Video. F word document, oh, wow. okay. cell document. We have videos. <laughs> we have watermarking on videos. We have uh, trans or transcriptions of videos, right? So- yeah. So the transcriptions would be good content to store in MongoDB, but the blob storage, I imagine you're using some type of object storage for that? Correct. You had an Azure blob back there. Okay. And then there's some linkages stored in the database. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So why why MongoDB? Well, first of all, it, it does help that MongoDB was very helpful and supportive, especially in the early architecting days as we set this up. So that actually was one of the considerations in picking MongoDB was how much support the actual organization offers. Additionally, the application loans well to Mongo. We have, we're mostly read heavy, to be honest. I mean, if you think about the flow and what would happen like an M&A transaction, at the very beginning, yes, you're going to be doing a lot of uploading of documents. You're going to be setting up that file room, moving things around, setting it. It's probably one or two people that do that. And then that's it. And then after that, it's the every user you invite into this project, read it. So it's a very mm -hmm. read-heavy process, which means that if you want to denormalize your schema, nest certain things to make those fetches easier, you're not necessarily worrying about having to update that multiple different times. You're just going to have one batch of uploads once, one sets of writes once, and then for the most part, you're, you're going for reads. That Mongo's ability to scale was another one, especially as we grow and not necessarily knowing what a user is going to end up doing with their with their <laughs> project and their entry into a data site is is extremely helpful. So those yeah. were from a from a data standpoint, technical standpoint, some of the reasons mm -hmm. that we ended up going down the route with MongoDB. Yeah. And I, you know, at the at the core of it, right, Mongo is great for managing pre-processing. You're not aggregating at the point of read. And so it lends itself very well to our use case, both in what Heather has pointed out, but also we are predominantly an event-driven architecture. And so what that lends itself to is, you know, if we have a source of record and then we have, you know, a reference to that within another collection that is set up for pre-processed data for reads, we have events driving those updates to keep them eventually consistent. And eventually consistent is within a second or two, right? Yep. And that's defined within this system. Right. So it lends itself very well to that. It's also very easy for engineers to understand, right? There we're, we're predominantly restful services interacting with each other, right? So the payload is also what's in the, the data store. It seems to be a very ergonomic approach 
at persistence. Tell me about that. What do you mean by ergonomic? Ergonomic in that they, you know, granted, most of our, we, we are training our engineers to be full stack owners, right? You, you as a, as a team, similar to the Spotify model, but a little different, but you know, you as a team own front end services, back end event store, your operational performance, that kind of thing. But a lot of our engineers at their core are Java or Node engineers, right? They know their service very well. They're used to consuming client payloads. They're used to publishing those payloads. They're used to, you know, interacting with data in a very JSON-y kind of format, right? And so BSON is easy for them to understand, you know, especially with the a lot of the, the functionality in Spring Data Mongo, you know, you're interacting with things kind of similar to how you would be walking the graph of JSON nodes. And so it just it seems to fit in place for a lot of a lot of microservice engineers. Yeah, I would also say just being on Mongo in general really changes kind of your engineering organization. You're used to having databases managed with a team of DBAs, an army of data experts. Not to say that you don't need that with Mongo, you certainly do. But you don't need a a full-time staff of DBAs to run this. Your engineers have to take on the responsibility of maintaining and, and understanding their own data and their own data flows. Sounds like a perfect match. You know, like we do have a Mongo team, but they are primarily focused with the health of clusters, with maintaining our versioning in Atlas, with monitoring the macro performance of our systems. We still need our engineers to be very fluent in Mongo because they own the data. They own the data architecture that, you know, it's a different data modeling process involved with this. And so we, you know, Mongo, the Mongo group has been really excellent with offering training, giving us the tools that we need. I think we've got like a seminar coming up to walk everybody through it and for more. So, so that, that's very important to us that as engineers across, they're very comfortable in the Mongo space. Can we talk a little bit about scale? Now, Heather, you've, you've seen this from the very beginning. What are we talking about in terms of the number of the amount of storage and the, the number? You said 15 clusters, but how much data are we talking about? Give me one moment. I did actually put this up because I knew you were going to ask me this question. <laughs> well, you said we scaled. We, we do scale. And of course, I'm not in the right spot. But I can tell you overall, so I do have some of these numbers memorized. So including data that has gone through our system in total. So to get an idea of what has landed from Mongo into our warehouses, you're looking at approximately 40 terabytes of data since we started, just in the United States alone which for something that really hasn't been live for too terribly long in the grand scheme of things, that's, that's a decent amount. Yeah. And to give you an idea, you know, we also have other, we have regions in Europe, we have regions in Australia. We're, we're pretty wide. So like that's just US and Europe, I think has been more active at least recently even than US. So, so 40 terabytes, that's, that's a lot of data. How many documents do you think make up the total 40 terabytes? When you say documents, do you mean Mongo documents or do you mean? Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, let's let's go from the physical world to the digital world. How does it translate from physical documents to to that 40 terabytes of data? Well, I would say the 15 clusters are separating data amongst their concerns. So we mm. obviously don't just store documents. We have, I don't know couple hundred different collections across the, the clusters with different varying data. Yeah. And the size of those collections range 
a good deal. I mean, we have some collections that have a few hundred documents in them. We have documents with shards that have 19 million in them. So that's, I mean, they, they range a good bit. I'll give you, I'll give you a hint. The one that's 19 million might be, might be storing document metadata. Obviously we have a, a good bit of that one. Yeah. So they, it, it ranges greatly. And actually one of the things that we had wanted to do is we knew coming out the gate that document data was by far, and when I say document data, I mean like the physical documents that we upload, not a Mongo document. The document data was going to be one of our largest collections. We knew out the gate that this was going to be a sharded collection. So when we were actually setting up Mongo, even when we had it on site, we were planning on making that sharded. We had chosen a shard key and knew how we were going to do that as we set this. And as soon as we started seeing issues in performance in that particular cluster in Atlas, we were able to turn over that into a sharded collection, I'd say within a few hours. Yeah. And part of that is the the administration of the Mongo team as they are they strongly enforce our shard keys are in every query. Yep. Mm. Just makes it a lot easier. You know, you're, you remain efficient even during sharding. How did you go about picking that shard key? I mean, that's incredibly important out of the gate because, well, up until recently, it was impossible to change that shard key. So how did, how did you land on the, the specific piece of metadata you used for the shard key? For us, this actually wasn't that big of a decision, shockingly. This is actually the same thing we use as, for our partitions in Snowflake, which is our warehouse project. Every single client we have the entity that they are uploading their documents in, that they are asking questions in for Q&A, that they're redacting in, is a project that is the bounded context that every single client has. And everything is limited by what is in that project. Project sits in all of our a lot of our APIs. Those APIs show up in a number of our databases. It's a common foreign key. It made so much sense to use it as our shard key as well. I will, but we might be having discussions about that in the next Correct. week or so based on we're currently looking at. So we're in a phase right now. We've, we've grown pretty big. We're now seeing far down the road potential issues with scalability. And so we're evaluating our systems and making sure that we are structured correctly to scale in the directions that we're seeing the business going. And one of those is potentially abstracting away from just project and allowing different data contexts in there. Um, and so we're in conversations with that to offer... It just offers our, our platform a, a vastly more flexible... There will always be a context, though. And there will always be a project context. There just may be other... Yeah, we are, we are expanding. When we first started this venture, we had the original M&A application, and it was the only product we offered. And... We frantically built that up, built that up from a greenfield. And I remember constantly being told, just build it like it was in the old product. Just build it like it was in the old product. Because we had this fuzzy concept of what we could potentially do. We knew that there was more to the MA, you know, process other than diligence. Mm-hmm. But it was very early days and we had nothing concrete. So we were able to build that up knowing we were going in a certain direction. And and that model lasted us a good six years. Well, I love the foresight. So what's next for, for Datasite? What's on the horizon in terms of, of projects or platform expansion? Well, so kind of leading with that scaling thing right now, that's, that is the primary focus of, of my 
position is working with teams to identify those challenge areas and coming up with a you know short, medium, long-term plan to adjust them. We recently just completely revamped our, you know, we have, we're storing blobs, uh, our blob replication system, right? Ensuring that we just partially for disaster recovery, but also for, you know, not quite edge computing, but, you know, bringing our data closer to compute. And we were also running into scalability issues there with how it was currently designed. So that's one that we are wrapping up this quarter. And so far, it's looking excellent. One we're currently in, both Heather and I, is a pretty interesting challenge. It is dealing with, I mentioned before that we offer redaction AI. In other words, AI-assisted redaction suggestions. Um, in other words, you know, you load a bunch of documents in, we know specific categories that you're going to be looking for, like PII, like money, you know, those kinds of things. It runs through our, our, our AI engine and we produce a ton of suggestions for you for each document, you know, where, where the suggestion is to be redacted, what type it is, the value, that kind of thing. So that when you go in, you don't have to individually redact all the different components. Can through. I interrupt you? So is that redaction in the image, in the PDF, for example, in the blob, or is that redaction of the fields within the, the MongoDB document? In the PDF. We don't store... Our, our redaction process is pretty cool. You can't... Um, wow. it, it is actually redacted from the PDF that you have access to. You cannot access. Yes. Very cool. So what we're storing in Mongo tends to be more, okay, what was the field that was redacted and where in the PDF does it exist, for instance? Oh, very cool. Very cool. And then that's rendered on the client side, that, that component, most of it. Anyway, so with, redact or with AI, of course, there's a ton of data that comes into play. And the graph of how this data is persisted and then accessed is... a Unique in my experience, really, it's we, in the, the life cycle of a project, folks will dump tons of documents into our system, upload, I mean, just an insane amount of documents. And so, as you can imagine with AI, there's a little bit of time that takes to flow. And so, we process those suggestions at the point of upload. Once we upload them, process them into, um, you know, understandable, readable formats, um, we then run through those suggestions. Those suggestions then sit for months sometimes until they're actually ready to redact. And at that point, they want them instantly. And so effectively, you have this graph or this access strategy where you have write heavy, super, super heavy, and then it just sits. And then now we need access to it. But most of the time, they need access to just aggregations on that data. And so we're looking at different solutions, um, potentially involving uh, Mongo Archive, you know, other areas where we have this concept of cold storage um, that we can then rehydrate into operational data. I guess save some money by moving some of the older, less frequently accessed. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Are, are you using Atlas Search? Not yet. Okay. There's been there's been some initiatives recently where leveraging that with the Lucene Index seems to be a, something to vet, at least. Yeah, there's definitely some, some thought around it and some curiosity. Are you maintaining your own Elastic instance separately? How are you doing search through the, through the documents? Yeah, this is definitely Elastic search. So it's maintained by us. Okay, so it would make sense at some point to... to okay. It, it, it very well may. 
Um, but we've had Elastic Search for a while. I mean, it's spun up as one of the initial things we released with. So it's one of those items where if we did decide to go down the route of Atlas Search, it would take us a bit to, to deprecate and move over most likely. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so it sounds like you've both got your hands full with some amazing projects. I'm curious about um, how you stay current with all of the things that you need to know to continue to be effective in your roles. I always like to ask folks, are you listening to other podcasts or are you reading books? Um, Michael, what's what's on your reading list? So very appropriate for where we're at. About a month ago, I just finished uh, New to Big, mm. which is you know just great use cases in that of, of companies that started out at a certain point. They're at a growth point where now they need to set up to be scalable across and what does that look like? I read a lot of architectural documents across a variety of different concerns. In fact, I was just vetting data architecture for MMORPGs, right? Because that's a fascinating area. Um, yeah. You know, I'm kind of, uh, I was recently just kind of dusting off some uh, books of mine on Lambda architecture, which mm-hmm. seems to fit some of our use cases, right? We know the query. It's going to be read heavy. It's okay to be eventually consistent, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of technical documentation. And frankly, talking with folks like Heather uh, and you know some of our other you know very, very senior engineers uh, because they all have passions in different areas. And it's always great to learn from other folks. Yeah, for sure. Heather, Heather what's on your reading list or, or even, even listening? Are you listening to podcasts or anything? I, I literally just pulled my, my work bag out and I'm like, which book do I have in there right now? <laughs> I have uh, Designing Data Intensive Applications. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Um, so that's actually one of the books that I'm actively reading. I'm calling it my my lunch break book. So when I actually hit lunch, that's typically what I'm doing is I'm reading. The other item that I've been kind of going through recently is the idea of data mesh, reading through some of the blog articles on that as we start looking into... So from an engineering organization perspective, we've spent a lot of time working on capability scope domain. Mm. We were looking at domain ownership and making certain that teams have ownership all the way from the front end of the applications down to their data stack. Mm-hmm. And I'm now starting to get into this question of, well, from a data level, how do we make it so that teams have the resources and ability to own their data from start to finish? Mm-hmm. I mean, with Mongo, they kind of have to own their data on the Mongo side because it's introduced in their code. Your schema is essentially what's sitting in your entity. You have mm-hmm. full control over it. But once it's in Mongo, do you own all the pipelines? Do you own the event-driven pipelines that could potentially be communicating your data outward? Do you own your analytics data? And how does that change how your team functions? Who is on your team? And what what insights does that give you? Being able to have access to that data and able to analyze that data and have an idea of what your clients are doing within your domain really can drive a lot of your decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I would just for additional context there, so that when we talk about these capabilities, we started out with different products, right? Diligence for the sell side, acquire for the buy side, you know, prepare, you know, and each of these were monolithic things with domain services underneath. We have since switched to kind of become that platform as a service piece. Each of these capabilities like trackers or your documents structure in, in how you interact with it from the front end all the way down, we're migrating those to be essentially like individual companies, 
to where even internally we're interacting with them like they're third party services. Um, and like kind of that, that loosely coupled, highly aligned, I think is, is our, our CTO's favorite line. And, and that's really truly what we're trying to, to build here. So with Heather, like we're, Heather is taking it even further than we have it right now to bringing the entire life cycle. So already each capability team owns their CI CD, you know, owns their, their testing, owns their user experience, you know, owns the front end, the back end, everything. But mm-hmm. now bringing it down to the data analytics level uh, is really going to offer us a lot of power in that they know how everything is being used and they know what they're exposing out to analytics. So what important things do the listeners need to know about DataSite? We're moving fast. We have a lot of, we're always looking at very cutting edge solutions to problems. Um, as I said, you know, we're going all over the place, looking at MMORPG architecture, looking at data mesh, um, you know, always kind of vetting things from not even just our own arena, but, but solutions that other folks have, you know, occasionally look at things that are outside of the technology infrastructure entirely, um, see how, you know, those kind of modes fit in. One thing I like to I kind of, it's kind of analogous to me is, I don't know if you know, but the, that auto stop in cars, that actually came from biology, from locusts. They, fig- they watched how locusts change direction and that, and they figured, they honed in on what is this, the actual mechanism that allows, that supports that kind of quick reaction. Um, and that is what's facilitated an auto assist or auto brake in cars. Um, wow. So something from biology can affect automobiles. I always thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I've got some Googling to do. <laughs> that is fantastic. I, I love the sources of inf- inspiration for, for technologists. I mean, it's really, when you look deeply, they're, they're all around us. And I think it's, it's about getting creative. So what's, um, what's the culture like at DataSite? Inquisitive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we definitely like challenging ourselves in the, in the, in the best possible ways. We have some great and interesting problems to try and solve. I, as a manager, I get to sit in a number of interviews. This is not part of my job description. And I I tell people all the time, yeah, it's an M&A application. It's way more interesting that it actually sounds from a technical standpoint. I, I have a lot of people hesitant when they come into some of my interviews and they're like, well, what is this actually like? And it's like, no, you actually do get to handle some pretty complex problems, like the redaction problem that Michael Merlin was mentioning earlier. Um, we're just starting to introduce Kafka to our system and getting that to move data around introducing the Mongo streams, connecting it to Kafka and starting to move that data, persist that data in flight. And you're talking about potentially using like your event source as a source of truth for certain ports of your data. There's a lot of very exciting things happening under the covers with this platform, especially from a data standpoint. And from a culture perspective, we have tremendous leadership. They they really go out of their way to make sure that everybody has a sense of agency, right? Mm-hmm. You can control what you want to. Even so the the group that I'm I'm heading right now, this technology enablement piece, we're not a bunch of ivory tower architects demanding on how you do this right i mean this and this was a this was a situation that was um engendered by our leadership which was you know our team will go and work with folks you know yes we'll offer some architectural options we're not going to ram it down their throats um we're just going to kind of facilitate the conversation and make sure that all all aspects of the challenge are considered yeah 
it's not just giving a suggestion. A lot of times we will give like a workable solution. Right. If it works for you, wonderful. If it doesn't, feel free to expand on that or use a different use case. So there's a lot of flexibility in there in what mm. we do with it. But that, that is kind of part and parcel of our, our culture. Um, we always try to make sure that the easy path is the right path, but you are feel free to go off that path and do what you need to do, right? As long as you're, you have safe architecture and you're, you're doing things in a way consistent with our requirements or our, our priorities, that's completely fine. Um, we are of the polyglot, right? So we have, we have node services, we have Python, we have, you know, wherever, whatever people want to get into is, is fine with them. And we make sure that they have the tools and the, uh, the education and, you know, anything they need to, to go down the path that they want to. Yeah. I'd say the other thing that really is also helpful and kind of unique is back to that curiosity that we, we really do inspire, encourage innovation within the site, especially from a technical standpoint, but even beyond that, this organization does two, I'm going to call them hackathons or so in a given year. Mm. And these are open to anybody in New York. So yes, it's great when you're working with your team on a project. It's kind of cooler when you start bringing in like, hey, I'm going to pair with somebody in sales to get something done or client services to get something done or security to get something done. And yes, it's wonderful if you do a hackathon project that is for data site, but it's not a requirement. It's really three or four days to fiddle with something that's been on your mind for a while and you want to start to manifest it. And we have used several of these projects in our actual application. Mm. A lot, actually. I would say a handful every time we do an innovation jam becomes something we want to, we get prioritized through the product, through everything and get implemented. Right. So these are not, this is not just a playtime for engineers. You know, they actually put power behind that. It's yeah. a great way to introduce product in the org to ideas that may not have been readily apparent. That big Kafka effort that my team is working on right now, that started as a hackathon. Mm. The new, uh, we just revamped our permission system, took about a year that I POC'd that for. Uh, one of our innovation jams. Ditto the whole capability thing that we're now driving our platform towards was also part of this. I love that. I think that was the one we did together. The capability one, yeah. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. We we do something similar at MongoDB. We we call it Skunkworks. And there have been several products that have actually been launched and, and born of the Skunkworks uh, hackathon uh, kind of initiative. So fantastic. That's great. Heather, I, I, I did have a question. Now, you talked about starting at Datasite as a young engineer, and now you're talking about being in a in a people leadership role. Tell me about that transition. Has that been difficult for you? Um, A little bit. I'm at the point in my career where I have fallen in love with technology, and I would just love to spend all of my days tinkering with all of the things. But at the same time, I'm I'm very interested as as my as Mike said, making certain that folks have the tools that they need to keep innovating and moving forward and inspiring others to to kind of keep building in new directions is where I mm. want to go. Yeah. I originally started as, like I said, a junior engineer. I kind of got my feet wet. And then I'd say within a year, I was like, you know. I would really like to see this done. And I started having all of these suggestions. And then my manager at the time said, do you want to be the dev lead? I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think I was a senior engineer yet. And he he asked me that question. Yeah. So 
I mean, I just, I always have ideas. There's always something percolating in my mind. Mm. And I, I, my, my thought has always been the more ideas that we can bring in the, into the forefront, the more thoughts that we can bring into a POC, into an MVP, Mm-hmm. The, the better the better this product is probably going to turn out because you never know who has the idea for your next big product. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed our time together. We're running running up on the time. I did want to ask you if you had any advice or suggestions for folks considering uh, a deployment with MongoDB. Are there things that you've thought about since you've you've gone live or, or migrated to Atlas? Things you'd like to share with uh, with other folks listening? I'm sure you have a bunch, Heather. <laughs> I would say that making a shift from a traditional SQL solution to a document store has a lot more to do with the culture than it does the actual technology. I think if you can make that cultural shift correctly, then you have a tremendous, you dramatically increase your level of success, right? If you just introduce the technology and folks interact with it like a SQL store, not designed for that, it'll work. But you know, to unleash the true power of of this technology, you really need to have that that paradigm shift in the engineers' minds. Yeah, and making certain that you know why, and these engineers understand why this is the right tool for what you're trying to accomplish. Mm. There's a lot of ways that y- you can move a ball forward. There's a lot of technologies out there, but making certain that everybody understands. And has the education around Mongo and knowing that, yes, this is the right path. This is the right way forward. It, it does make that transition a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And making certain everybody is trained. That's a great one. I still have some absolutely wonderful memories. Some of them fairly recent of sitting in workshops and learning about MongoDB and sitting with other engineers and, and trying new things, trying some of the new features that have been released. It's, it is always a lot of fun. Mongo is a lot more hands-on for engineers than a lot of other database technologies. And it is an absolute blast. Yeah, I was, uh, Mongo University was part of my onboarding. And I had, had done NoSQL before, but was new to Mongo. And I, I fell in love, like, instantly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so much fun. I still, you know, migration scripts are one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) 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 I love it. All right. Well, Michael, Heather, thank you so much for spending time with me. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you. Anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up? Not that I can think of. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate it. This was excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you will agree that that was a fascinating conversation with Heather and Michael, and we do hope you enjoyed it. It's great to get some deep customer insights and amazing to hear how Datasite is transforming a traditionally in-person paper-based activity into the online world and layering on top of that data-driven technologies such as artificial intelligence. Do check out our show notes for more information. Did you know that this time of year is mongodb.local time? That's right. We're bringing the best of MongoDB world on tour, hopefully to a city near you. A dot local is a day filled with educational breakout sessions, announcement-packed keynote presentations, customer stories, and free one-on-one Ask the Experts consulting sessions, along with networking opportunities and much more. We've just completed Frankfurt at the end of September, but in October, November, and December, we will bring our dot local event to San Francisco, Dallas, London, and Toronto. You can find out more at 
mongodb.com forward slash events. And the best part, all mongodb.locals are free to attend. Thanks for tuning in. And if you did enjoy this episode and haven't done so already, please do take two minutes of your time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help us a lot for discoverability. So from me, Shane McAllister, until next time, do take care and thanks for listening.